You're listening to The Thrive Podcast, where every week we dive into a practical, tactical tip to bring you from a life of simply surviving to thriving. It's personal development for the everyday girl who is done with coasting through her days, done with feeling like she's missing out on the deeper meaning of her own life, and done with mediocrity once and for all. Because it's not enough to simply survive, you deserve to thrive. Welcome back to Thrive. For those who have gone through some really terrible stuff in life, it can be hard to feel like a survivor, let alone a thriver. But today's guest, Terry Kozlowski, is here to help you do just that. She is a proud Native American warrior of the Athabascan Gitwin tribe, Raven Clan, a certified life coach, author, podcaster, and a survivor of childhood trauma and sexual abuse. Today on Thrive, Terry is sharing her story of healing and empowerment with advice on getting out of the egoic mind, moving past limiting beliefs, and choosing to live beyond fear as your most authentic self. Today's episode does come with a trigger warning, as we do talk about things like sexual assault and abuse. If you're feeling a bit sensitive to those topics today, please feel free to listen to a different episode of Thrive instead and come back if or when it feels right. Stay tuned through this conversation, drop it five stars if you like what you're listening to, and without further ado, welcome Terry. Hi, Erica. It's nice to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome to Thrive. I am so honored uh, to have you here to share your story and your message of going from surviving to thriving, quite literally, as a (laughs) survivor of childhood trauma and abuse. So I know you have a heavier story, but you also have a hopeful message that helps so Mm -hmm. many people today with what you do. So without stealing your thunder, let's just dive into it and go there if you're ready. So tell us about you, your story, your past, and what you do now. Sure. So my story begins as it, as we all begin. We come to this earth school. We all come thriving, um, soulful beings, knowing exactly what we're supposed to do with life. And then we come into our first unknown, which is our family. And sometimes we come into a thriving family and sometimes our families don't thrive at all and are very destructive to the members of it. I happen to be involved in one where my mother was extremely destructive to her two daughters. And when I was 11, uh, my parents divorced when I was eight. When I was 11, we went to visit my mother because my dad had custody of us. He was the first man in the state of Maryland to get custody of two small girls. And that was in the early 70s. Wow. Yes. So that tells you this, the timeline that we're looking at in a time where mothers automatically got their children. And had my mother not shown up at court, she would have gotten custody of us. And I think that that was the first blessing in disguise was that she didn't show up. That's the first time she abandoned my sister and I. So we get to New Mexico for a visit because We're living with my dad. We haven't seen my mother since I was eight. I'm now 11. She came through one time for a visit, for an overnight visit, and that was it. So between eight and 11, I saw my mother once. At the age of 11, we go for what was supposed to be a summer visit. My mother is an alcoholic. We knew she was an alcoholic. What we didn't know was that during this time that we were away, she also became a drug addict. She had told my dad she was in AA and that she was sober and we get out for our visit and it was supposed to be for eight weeks. The first two weeks were fabulous. She was sober and some of my fondest memories of my mother occurred in those two weeks that she started drinking 
And from there, it was a spiral downward. All my codependent behaviors kicked in. And one fateful night um, after she was partying with friends, um, she allowed three men to sexually molest me so she could have drugs as she stood in the room and watched. Now, at 11, I'm not quite sure what to take from all of this because you don't understand. You don't understand it as an adult, let alone as a child, especially when it is your parent, that mm -hmm. mother figure who is supposed to be your protector all of your life. She's supposed to do this. And she did nothing at all to protect me from this. She initiated it. So it goes to the extreme opposite. So all of that occurs three she disappears three days later she shows up and literally takes my sister and i and kicks us out of her efficiency apartment onto the streets of albuquerque new mexico with our suitcases and tells us it's time for us to go home and closes the door and locks it my sister who's 11 months younger than i am is crying and screaming on the streets of albuquerque as i'm trying to figure out what do i do mm -hmm. And my dad made one simple comment, which he would, you know, all parents say to the oldest sibling, take care of your baby sister. And like that, it kicked in and I'm supposed to take care of my baby sister. So that started me down a path where I was thinking about somebody else, not myself. Mm. And I think that that was one of the biggest things that occurred there that allowed me to move past and figure out how to deal with things. So I called my dad, told him it, we had to come home. I don't know that I actually told him a whole lot. I just said we had to come home. And uh, the next day we were on an airplane back to Pennsylvania because literally we were 3000 miles away from any nearest relative. So we get home and I'm getting off the airplane. I'm 11 and I tell my dad I need therapy. This is in 1980. 11-year-olds <sighs> should not know what therapy is. Right. But I knew that whatever happened to me was significant and that I couldn't deal with it by myself. Now, I got to therapy. I was in therapy until I was 18. Because I didn't know what therapy was, because I didn't understand what that process was supposed to be, and because of the time, in 1980, what are they doing with the child in therapy? It's children aren't normally in therapy. I asked and my dad made sure I was. And I think for me, I learned how to talk some things out, but none of it concerned the abandonment. None of it concerned the rape. It really was about dealing with teenage stuff. Mm -hmm. But because I learned that process, I knew that there were good ways to release negativity and bad ways to release negativity. And I think that was what that helped. So I get to college and I am vocal about, I had a traumatic event. I don't tell you what my tra traumatic event was, but I'm vocal about it mainly because I have triggers and I know I have triggers. So if you trigger me, it could not be good for you. And so I wanted to make sure that if I was triggered that my behaviors on me, it's not your fault, Erica, if you triggered me, it's my fault for not preparing you, number one, and number two, my bad reaction to whatever that trigger was. So I'm vocal and I tell people that I have triggers. And I, in college, I have a guy tell me that I get something out of playing the victim, that I am attached to my victimhood. And I'm there's something about me being a victim that I'm getting something good out of it that, you know, 
And I had to sit with that for a while because initially I was very angry because, you know, who are you to tell me anything about my victimhood? But at the same time, it struck me enough that I sat with it. And what I realized was when you are a victim, when you take on victimhood and then you tell other people that you are a victim, how they treat you is different. How they treat you is more gentle. How they treat you is they walk on eggshells. They, they are quiet, more quiet around you than, than they are with other people. So ultimately, me being a victim meant that I could be left alone, that you weren't going to bother me, that if there was a group of us that were hanging out, you would ask everybody else, but you wouldn't ask me to come along because you didn't know how I was going to react. So I ultimately wanted to be left alone. So it worked out. It worked for me, but I realized, you know, I'm now 18 and I'm trying to understand how to get along better in the world. And there has to be a better way to communicate than staying a victim because mm -hmm. in victimhood, you are disempowered in victimhood. You have no control In victimhood. You are clinging to the past and therefore you are depressed because I think all depression is us clinging to the past of something. So I decided I was going to become a survivor. And becoming a survivor, I did a complete 180, and now I have been, I'm empowered to make choices. I'm also responsible for the choices I make, which means I cannot blame my mother or the trauma for bad choices I make because I made those choices. I was conscious when I made those choices. My mother wasn't in my life telling me what to do. I made those choices. So I had to take responsibility. When you take responsibility, you become empowered. And when you become empowered, you now have control of your life. And ultimately, becoming a survivor means giving up control, which is the one thing all victims want is control, but they don't have it when they stay in their victimhood. The only way to get control of your life is to change your mindset, become a survival, take responsibility for your life to move forward. Man, there's so much to unpack there, but <laughs> how, why or how do you think you were so self-aware at such a young age to have even gone through what you went through and the severity of that and then to come out, especially in a time where, like you said, children in therapy was not really a common practice at all at that point. Mm -hmm. Where do you think that came from where you just kind of knew this is something that I need and to go and take those steps to initiate that for yourself? I think we all come to our school very, very aware. And I think that what happens is as we go through the domestication process and we ha have peer pressure and mom and dad tell us to be good boys and good girls that we start conforming into what other people want us to be instead of being our authentic selves but when you look at small children especially children under the age of six before they get into school and you look at them and watch how they interact with the world they're the ones running up to perfect strangers and loving on people they're the ones that are not afraid of anything you know they climb they climb a tree and are going to jump out because they have no fear of what is in front of them we as parents instill fear into our children we're the ones that say, don't do that. Or as soon as you say, what happens to a child? Almost always they break down into tears because they are now afraid because they didn't know what they were doing was wrong. And really what they're doing isn't wrong. So I think we all come into this world aware. I just happen to stay more aware and more awake as I even going through the trauma than most children do. Most children shut down. And I think because of that awareness, and because of that internal seeking is why I was able to move through 
dealing with the different aspects of the trauma the way I did. Mm-hmm. And I know you're also a proud Native American warrior, which is awesome. Do you think that, how, how much of that in your background do you think had anything to do with how you were able to overcome what you overcame? Do you think it was additional help when you were abandoned or did it give you hope to cling to when you were really going through so much or what, what part of that, of your background and of your heritage influenced like how you think and how you are today, do you think? It didn't have any influence when I was younger and during the trauma because my mother, although she would tell me I was Native American because she was full-blooded, she didn't teach us, Mm. my sister and I, anything about it. So after the trauma and in high school and college, I started researching more about my um, background. And as I found out more and more, and then later in life, when I really grabbed a hold of the fact of what the raven symbolized. So my mother happens to be Athabascan Tinglet uh, Raven clan. So the raven is the family, um, the clan symbol, symbol. And what the raven stands for is for the Tinglets, they, the raven brings the sun, brings the light to the people. So part of me accepting the fact of who I authentically am, part of what I'm supposed to do is bring light to others. And I know that that's part of where the title of my book, Raven Transcending Fear, comes from, is that I'm helping people transcend the fear. Because the other thing with the Raven symbology, whether it is in um, Native American or Norse or Celtic mythology, is that the Raven is responsible for helping spirits transcend from this world to the next. Mm. And my job is to tr- help people transcend from the egoic mind, the fearful mind, to that of the loving mind, which is a complete shift in most people's thinking is to understand that we're meant to be loving creatures and that is who we authentically are. But the egoic mind is very loud and it causes us great grief because it's what causes us to suffer all inside our own heads because the reality is if we just reached out and loved one another, we would get that love back in return. So you mentioned the egoic mind. I'm so glad you did because can you break that down and define that for people who might be listening and going, what the heck is the egoic mind? Never heard of it. So the way I explain the egoic mind is that's that inner critic voice. That's that person inside of you that tells you you did wrong, you're not worthy. It's also that conditioning that, you know, my mother's voice in my head telling me that I am I will, I'm not a survivor, telling me that I'm not worthy of her love, telling me that it's my fault that she's an alcoholic, telling me it's my fault that she abandoned us, my sister and I. Those voices, although it's in my mother's voice, it's still the egoic voice in my head trying to make sure that I conform to whatever it is to keep me ultimately safe. And that's the ego's primary job to keep us safe. So if we have trauma in our past, or if we've had a negative experience, it's doing what it can for us not to have that experience again. And that means it doesn't like change. That means it wants us to stay exactly the way we are, even if we're suffering, because we know what this feels like. And I talk about in my book, The Thorny Blanket, and the defense mechanisms that we automatically put on when something bad happens. And we don't realize that, you know, I put that thorny blanket on when I was 11. You know what? I'm 52. There's all kinds of things with that blanket I probably don't need anymore. But 
taking that thorny blanket off, what we don't realize is that it had thorns in it. So when we take it off, now we have open wounds it's, and we have some infection in some places and maybe a little bit of blood, but that is something new. That pain is new, but it's the pain of healing. And what people don't realize is that healing does feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. because you have to work through those things. When you cut your finger, it hurts. It bleeds. Then it starts scabbing over. It's tingles sometimes if you touch it, if you're sensitive, you know. So that is exactly what happens when you go through an emotional healing process. And that's what I meant by triggers. Those triggers are somebody poking at my wound and me not realizing, oh, that's what that is. I, I you know, I have to examine this again. I have to look at this and determine why am I reacting poorly? And when we consciously look at a power to respond to something, we've now shifted from the egoic mind to the soulful whispers of our hearts, to the soulful actions. When we respond, we allow the internal knowing, that internal part of us that is our soul, that's connected to a divine source, connected to the universe in some way, to allow us to direct us down a more loving path. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that you mentioned that metaphor too with the thorny blanket. That's such a good visual because I think oftentimes in today's society, people forget this and we have, I see so much messaging so often of people that will say, oh, if you're on social media and you see something that bothers you or that triggers you, just unfollow the person, mute the person, eliminate them from your life. And I've just, that's never sat well with me because I've always thought, okay, but why is it triggering you? Like, why is it if it's bringing something up in you, that's not a reflection of them because they don't know you. They're a stranger on the internet. They're, they're living their life and they're not doing anything to you. So if you're having a reaction to it, instead of just eliminating them, that doesn't eliminate the problem. It just eliminates Correct. you seeing the problem. So I'm like, why, why, if, if you're tempted to hit an unfollow button or eliminate someone else, I, I wish more people would actually just sit with that and sit with that discomfort, like you said, and really reflect on, wait, why am I feeling uncomfortable right now? Like what, what is, what is hitting me and what is happening in me and what do I need to do to fix that and to heal that? Because I think more often than not, it's a reflection of where we need the healing and what is, what is being stirred up in us that might need to be intentionally focused on for our own growth because just unfollowing someone on social media isn't going to actually lead to us growing at all. <laughs> the humans are not meant to live in a vacuum. We aren't meant to just only be surrounded by people that keep us comfortable. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to expand. We're supposed to grow. And growth of any kind is uncomfortable expansion of any kind is uncomfortable because you're going into the unknown which the ego doesn't like but more importantly as you grow and expand part of what's happening is you need to look within you need to examine where did this belief come from why do i react poorly when i see hispanic men i know why i react poorly when i see hispanic men it was three hispanic men men that actually raped me when I was 11. So when I was in high school and college, seeing Hispanic men scared me. That's a natural reaction that I had. But guess what? You know, continuing to have that reaction all of my life when I have had positive experience with Hispanic men. And now in my life, I've had way more positive experience and only one negative experience. Why should I have angst when I see Hispanic men now? If I still am having angst at 52, there's a problem with my belief system. 
because I've had more positive experience. So we, we need to be able to look at where did this come from? Did this come from the fact that my grandparents and my parents said this was true? Is it true? Is it true for me? Whether it's true for them or not doesn't matter, but is it true for me? Because my grandmother was very much, in a, you know, she, she has passed. She was born in 1916. She lived through all kinds of things. But one of the things that she did, and she would say that she loved everybody, but she whispered about the colored people. Mm. Okay. So did she pass on any negativity to me, to me about that? No, but because my personal experiences were very different from my grandmother's. I grew up in, uh, when I was before my parents divorce, uh, I was uh, raised in the suburb of Washington, D.C., where I was 40% of a school that had 60% African-American population in it. So when I, what I thought that was normal, why wouldn't I think that was normal? That was normal for me. So I had never had any negativity towards people of color, not only because I was a person of color, but because that was my normal. That's what I um, lived with. But, you know, my grandmother had her issues, but they shouldn't be my issues. You know, that's part of breaking those generational patterns of behavior that we have to look at. You know, we have to decide, are we going to maintain those things? Another generational pattern behavior that I know I had to break was codependency. Being a child of an alcoholic caused me great codependent behaviors with my mother. And I needed to look and understand and break those so that I did not pass those down onto my children. And we mm -hmm. have to examine where these things come up for us. And if something doesn't feel right or something triggers us, we have a negative reaction. So we have to look at why that is. And if we don't, we're not growing, we're staying stagnant. Mm -hmm. Since you mentioned codependency, would you be willing to talk about what that looked like for you and how you see that, what that looks like for other people and maybe a couple of first steps in identifying that and ideally breaking free from it for people who are living in codependent situations and don't even realize that it is codependency? Um, well, one of the big things about my codependency was I was trying at six, seven, eight, nine years old, trying to protect my mother from my father. And what I mean by that was my dad would get really upset if he came from, from work and my mother was passed out on the couch from drinking. So I would clean up. I would put all the glasses away and everything. And she's just napping, you know, and it's okay to nap, but it's not okay to be passed out drunk. Or she would throw up and I would clean up her throw up, her vomit so that she didn't get in trouble. So I started doing that at a very young age and she was epileptic on top of everything. So she was taking phenobarbital and then drinking. So she would have these grand mal seizures and I was running around with the spoon, putting it on her tongue. I mean, I remember doing that at the age of five, making sure, trying to pull her away from, um, she had a grand mal seizure in a powder room and I'm trying to pull her away from things because she fell, hit her head and I'm you know trying to take care of her. So this, all this taking care of my mother is a is codependent behavior protecting my mother so that other, she didn't get in trouble with others was codependent behavior as i got older it became um serving you know she had a party so i would be the server of alcohol and as and then i was saying okay if i served a beer i dumped a beer so that there was some sort of okay, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm still okay with me because I don't like her drinking, but if I dump the alcohol and give her one, 
you know, it balances out. These are codependent behaviors that I had. To break them, um, when I married my first husband, one of the things I did was I cleaned up his messes. Now, he wasn't vomiting or anything, but he would get in a fight with his mother and I'd have to go mend the bridge, you know, take care mm. of things so that they could get a, they could communicate again. Those types of behaviors are ingrained in codependency. And Codependent No More is the book I used. I did everything through that book in the workbook to work out what I identified as my codependent behaviors. And part of all of that is wanting and realizing that I, I want to have a relationship with my, my mother. I can't have a normal relationship with my mother. So this codependent relationship will have to do. And at some point, we have to become aware that that relationship is extremely unhealthy for us and that we need to have some self-love and do some self-care so that we can break that and say, you know what, I'm going to put up some personal boundaries. Um, you can't talk to me unless you're sober. And when I do this as an act of self-love for myself, it allows me to break these bonds that are unhealthy and try to form ones that are healthier. Mm-hmm. What do you think has been the most significant for you in your own healing journey through everything? Forgiving her. Mm. And forgiveness, I know a lot of people struggle with forgiveness. And they really think it's wrapped up in, I never, absolutely never condoned my mother's behavior. And that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is saying, I am more important to myself than staying angry and attached to the negativity that my mother caused in my life. It's releasing that attachment to that negativity then that past and that pain. And the moment you do that, it's the first sign of real healing in moving forward in your journey. Now, and I did it in steps because, you know, that's a lot to forgive one person and you can forgive in little steps. You know, mom, I forgive you for calling me when you were drunk and I hang up the phone and <laughs> And I'm done with it. And those little steps along the way help you do the bigger work. Because when you realize, all right, the forgiving aspect isn't about her. And that's what people really need to grab a hold of. Forgiveness isn't about the other person. It's about our attachment to that other person, to that negativity, to that pain, and releasing that attachment. Yeah. I often see people mix up forgiveness and reconciliation. Like, and you don't actually need to reconcile with someone to forgive them. They don't even need to know from mm -hmm. you that you have forgiven them. It's mm -hmm. really more so for you in your heart, in your soul to forgive for exactly what you said so that you can healthily move forward and not be attached to whatever happened. It doesn't mean that you now have to be best friends or have this perfect relationship with this person that has wronged you. It's really just, yeah, that's, that's such an important, I think differentiation to make. And I never for a moment thought that my mother and I wouldn't reconcile until she passed. And when she been from the time, from the time the trauma occurred until she passed, um, I had only seen my mother three times. And once was I invited her to my first wedding because I always thought we would reconcile. So I would want her to be at my wedding. Um, I let her, I went to visit so she could meet her grandson and he was about 18 months old. It's the only time she ever saw him. 
And then I did uh, one trip with her to, I actually met her up in Alaska, which is where she's originally from because she was adopted and moved to Washington state. And it was the first time she had gone back to Alaska in 40 years. And I went with her just so that I could meet the, that side of the family. Um, every single time she was drinking or high. So, you know, she was never sober in any of those times. And that last trip um, took place in 1996. So from the night and she passed in 2012. So I didn't see her during that entire period of time. But so, but I always thought we would reconcile. So when she passed and, you know, my sister was all upset that I wasn't crying. I wasn't all upset. Like, you don't understand. I hadn't been community, you know, I've talked to her how many times over the course of these years, decades. Um, I didn't have, to me, who my mother was, was lost decades ago. And I realized what I was grieving was the fact that I didn't, wouldn't reconcile. And more importantly, I would never have the answer to the question why. Mm. And that's where I think other people get stuck too, is holding on to that why. Why did this happen? It doesn't matter if my mother gave me a why. It never would have justified her behavior. And that's what a lot of people really need to understand is that why question is a tool of the ego to keep us stuck in the past, to keep us still connected in some way to that pain and that trauma. And after she passed, I realized that part of me that was still holding on to that why was a part of me that hadn't healed yet, that really thought that. I was going to find an answer to why. And I realized there wasn't any plausible way she could justify what she did. Mm, that's so good and so important. I feel like that's one of the, the truth bombs that some, someone just needed to hear was it actually does not matter what the why is. It does not in any way, shape or form excuse the behavior or make it okay or make it your fault or mm. any of that. So... <laughs> mentally underline that for everybody. <laughs> um, but also I wanted to ask you about the idea of limiting beliefs, because I know you do so much with this now and how that really relates to the fears that we face, especially because you mentioned this earlier too. There's, there's really a difference too, between like the, the fight or flight reaction to actual danger in our lives versus the fears that come from, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves in our heads. So, Talk to us about limiting beliefs, what those are, and really how that relates to these fears and how we can kind of work to then overcome them when it's not something that's an inherent danger or an immediate threat to our survival. So the ego has been part of humanity for forever, and it had a proper place when we were hunter-gatherers, when we're picking berries and a bear is coming. These are the things that... Our ego was meant for us to, to, you know, fight or flight for. In today's society, that doesn't exist. In most of us, most of us live lives that don't have that aspect in it. Now, there are still people that have that, and I'm not negating that. But for most of us, we don't have that. So what the ego does instead, because it still has a job to do, is that it decides that, you know what? John made a bad comment about me in the last meeting. And now I have to go in and have another meeting with John and my boss. And, you know, and then it starts creating stories in our heads and fear of John and fear of being, you know, of our feelings being hurt. Our feelings being hurt is not 
a real good fear to have. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's uncomfortable, but it is really not what the ego is supposed to help us with. So the other aspect of all of this ego is that most of our limiting beliefs were formed when we were children and how our parents treated us how or didn't treat us or how what peer pressure we had those things that we tried to do to conform and be accepted to fit in those parts of our being that we shut down because it was not acceptable or labels we took upon ourselves because that was the right thing to do or, you know whatever those things were when we as we get older those beliefs that we have about those that time and those labels we don't challenge and you know if we don't challenge what my 11 year old mind was or my 18 year old mind was you know i've had a lot of life experience since then maybe i should rethink those beliefs and and especially when a majority you know 90 percent of our limiting beliefs come from our childhood the tapes playing in our heads that are a loving parent or a teacher said to us, I had a teacher tell me when I was in junior high that I wasn't good at painting. So I quit painting for 25 years. I wasn't trying to become a Picasso. I just like to paint. Let me have my creative outlet. So be very careful what you say to children and teenagers because they are listening to you. And they take one, one little thing that, they, that somebody said and it plays in their head for forever. And we have to figure out what tapes we're playing in our heads and then how to stop them. Because most of those tapes playing in our heads are not beneficial to us. Mm -hmm. Really think about it. Are any of those tapes you play in your head were, you know, worth keep playing? And this really sad part is we're the ones that keep hitting the play button. There's nobody else turning those voices on in our heads. We're doing it. So why is it that we keep allowing that tape to play? I'm not good enough to paint. I'm not good enough to paint. I'm not good enough to paint. When the reality is I'm not trying to sell a painting. I'm just enjoying the process. Let me, you know, go enjoy the process. Whether anybody thinks you're good or not, doesn't matter if you are enjoying the process. It's a creative outlet for you. Yes. And this goes to what we said earlier too, in terms of just how people are triggered in society today, because if you're just going through unfollowing people or whatever and not identifying where something is coming from, I had to do that myself because I realized as an adult that my experience being bullied in middle school was impacting everything about how I was viewing friendship as an adult because I would scroll on social media and think, oh, is this person, are they actually talking about me? Like, are they, is it this path there? They must be talking behind my back or they must be whatever. And none of that was, none of it was real. Mm -hmm. None of it was true. Like that was literally sixth grade Erica in the back mm -hmm. of my brain going, they're definitely talking crap on you behind your back and applying that almost to a sense of paranoia to adult relationships and adult friendships that were actually totally fine and not at all talking about me behind my back. But if you don't sit back and think, where is this coming from? And like go as far back as you possibly can. Actually, I remember I was taught that in therapy mm -hmm. was you have to go all the way back until you find the root. And if you can't find the root, you're not going back far enough. Correct. So you have to mentally go back until you can identify where that belief started. Who told you it? Where did you hear it? Where did it originate? Because that's where, I mean, 
we, we all know weeds keep growing if you don't get them out at the root. So you have to go all the way back to the point of the point of origin to rip that baby out and to heal from it and grow something else instead. Because man, if you don't go all the way back, it's a long journey to try to to try to find it. And what's really sad is for all of us, that journey goes back to our childhood. That journey yep. goes back to our parents. That journey goes back to our grandparents, our teachers, those people who had great influence on us, who inadvertently made one comment that we t grab a hold of and use. You know, the comment that my dad made to me about taking care of my baby sister, it wasn't until I was about 36 that I realized I needed to like turn that tape off. That my sister, who at that point was 35, was a grown woman, had her own children, had been married and divorced. And, you know, she needed to, I needed not to take care of her anymore. It wasn't my responsibility. But we take a hold of something and it may have been good for me for a period of time to get me out of a bad situation. But then we, it gets perverted when we don't let go of it. And that's what defense mechanisms do. And a lot of those limiting beliefs were defense mechanisms that made sense for us at a time period. And then we held on to them instead of let, letting them go. And that causes us more grief and mm -hmm. more harm. Oh, it's so true. So what would you say to the woman listening in who maybe isn't yet on the other side? Maybe she's currently experiencing trauma or abuse or is just filled with so much fear for whatever reason without yet seeing the light of hope at the end of the tunnel, what would you say to her? Two things. Number one, you are worthy absolutely positively as you are. You don't need to do or, or become anything more than you already are. And the minute you, you understand that you are worthy, then you understand that you, that you are strong enough to get out of whatever the trauma situation is. Because that, for a lot of women who are still in the midst of an abusive relationship or in the midst of trauma, they don't think they're worthy. Or they don't think they're strong enough to get out of it. So you are worthy because you're still here. That's how you know you are worthy. And that's how no, you, you know you are strong enough is that you're still here and you're still fighting. You can get out. The second thing I would say is that the biggest thing for us to understand is when we get quiet and we listen to the whispers of our soul, it is where all the answers we will ever need come from is within us. So all the answers are already within you. All the love you are trying to seek outside of yourself, you already have within you. And that's what you need to tap into to help you get to the place where you want to go, whatever that other side looks like for you. And I can help be that bridge to get you to that other side because I've already been through the pit of despair. I don't want anybody else to go through the pit of despair. You know, let me help you get on the other side. But you have to get quiet and you have to go within and you have to learn to listen to the whispers of your soul. You also have to learn to become your authentic self. That's part of this. That's part of the work that's required to become to get to the other side, to do the healing is becoming who you authentically are. And I believe all of us on the planet has that journey to take and that none of us really come out of our domestication childhood process that we don't have to take, that we didn't take on labels. We didn't take on masks. We didn't put on armor to try to get through that process and come into the world. But at some point, I'm, I think that's what all midlife crises are. I think that's all, <laughs> I think that's really what, you know, we hate being this thing that we're not, that we're pretending to be. So we have a midlife crisis and, you know, shed all of that and become who we authentically are. 
Mm-hmm. Same with the quarter life crisis. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Well, Terry, I want to wrap things up by asking you two things that I ask all Thrive guests, and that is, what does Thrive mean to you, and how do you strive to thrive in your everyday life? Thriving means that I am authentically me, doing whatever it is the universe has me wanting to accomplish that day, and knowing that whatever it is in currently happening in the present moment, that I'm fully present. I'm fully taking in the experience because the universe has something for me to learn about it. I love that. So tell everyone where they can find you online. You can find me at terrykozlowski.com. My book is raventranscendingfear.com. And I have a podcast called soulsolutionspodcast.com. And I'm on all the uh, social media outlets. And I have a guest, uh, gift for you, Erica, and your listeners, uh, a blueprint to overcoming fear and limiting beliefs. It's a mini ebook. And I will uh, get that link to you so you can share it with your audience. Awesome. So that'll be in the show notes. Thank you. You're welcome. Wait, before you go, make sure you're subscribed to never miss an episode of Thrive. Drop five stars on your way out if you like what you just listened to. And come join the party on Instagram at thrive.podcast to stay inspired and thriving all week long. Thanks for tuning in. It's your time to thrive.